There are some good reasons to pass from the United States into Mexico. One of those reasons is tacos. So I made this plan with a buddy of mine. He loves food, I love food, and we thought, you know what? If we're going to get some real Mexican tacos, what better place to go than Mexico? So we planned it. It was a Saturday. I remember this much. And as we were planning our adventure, we made sure to pack our bags with everything that we would need, you know, the passport, the money, and, uh, you know, they, they, and TJ, they accept, they accept the, the American currency, so we felt good about that. Um, we tried to dress down a little bit so that we didn't get robbed. So I dressed a little more poorly than usual, which wasn't too hard. I didn't have a lot of expensive clothes anyway. But the day finally came. We parked in the United States, and we were going to walk across the border, and that was, in fact, what we did. Kind of a scary thing, because as you walk into Mexico, uh, they have these uh, large metal, like, they're kind of gates, but they're turnstiles as you go in. So it was kind of scary going inside. I felt like I was walking into a prison cell. It was really weird. And so we get inside, and we have this wonderful time together. You know, we bought like a 1,000 tacos for like less than five bucks. It was amazing. Now, don't ask me what kind of meat it was. They said it was chicken. They said it was carne asada, but who knows? Who knows? It's hard to tell. But no matter what, we had a great time. We sat there in the open air. The sun was shining. We had this awesome time eating tacos and TJ. Well, as the sun started to set, we thought, you know, it's probably a good time for us to head back home, back to the United States of America. So we walked back to the border patrol, and we would get in the single file line to, to make our way back into the United States. And so I have my backpack on, and we're walking into the building, and I'm a little intimidated. You ever get that feeling when, like, when there's a, a police officer nearby, you kind of, like, you, you try to act cool, but you act more <laughs> unusual and more suspicious because you're trying to act cool? It was in one of those moments. Uh, I, was, I was having that sense of, like, oh, man, what, I, I'm, I'm going to be mistaken to be a Mexican citizen because I look like a Mexican. I, I am a Mexican, so maybe they're going to keep me thinking I should stay. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm American. I was already trying to, in my head, just rehearse what I would say if the guy wouldn't let me pass. And I, that's okay. I have something that's going to guarantee my successful transition from Mexico to the United States. I have my passport. So we get our way closer to the, uh, the gates, uh, closer to the guys who are checking you back into the States. And so I thought, okay, time to get ready. I take up my backpack. I reach my hand into my bag to pull out my trusty passport, and I'm feeling around the pocket where it's supposed to be, and there's no passport there. So I'm looking in my bag, and I'm like, no, 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 hold on a second here. I'm looking in my bag frantically, just begging God to show me where the, where the passport is, or maybe I left it somewhere. I was checking my pockets. I did everything I could to figure out what was happening here, and I, I came to realize I left it at home in the United States. <laughs> I'm in Mexico. I did have my driver's license. Uh, and that's really, this is several years ago, so it's not a, a massive deal, but I get up to the gate, the agent, and I say, I don't have my passport. I am an American. Can you hear me? Like, listen to my voice, man, and talk to me. I'm an American. Uh, and here's my driver's license, and I speak perfect English, as you can tell, and I love America. God bless, you know. Put my hand over my heart and everything. <laughs> but again, when you're trying to look non-suspicious and like, authentic, you look more suspicious and less authentic, right? So I think this is what began my journey for the rest of my life, where I would get randomly checked and verified if I truly was who I said I was. And so he kind of looked me over and started asking me some questions about where I was raised, you know, all this stuff. So, um, I, did make, I did make it back to America. Here I am. <laughs> Thank you. But one of the questions he asked it out, and I recall it to this day, he says, are, are you a U.S. citizen? Are you a citizen of the United States of America? I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. You could tell by the way I dress, by the way I talk. I clearly am not a Mexican, even though I am on, like, genetically, like, culturally. That's the furthest thing from whom I am. Are you a U.S. citizen? You know, at some point in your life, you're going to approach a gate and you're going to be asked a question. Are you a citizen of heaven? 
Maybe God won't exactly ask that, but this, it's really essentially the same. And at that point in time, when you get to that gate, it's not going to be a matter of, hey, do you want to become a citizen? You know, do you have a passport? Really, the matter is settled before you even enter that place, before you make the transition from one world to the next. Determining your citizenship beforehand is the most important thing you could possibly do. Because otherwise, if you wait until the day of, like me, you're going to be said, oh, I don't have my passport. I don't know. I'm, I, don't, I am a citizen. I, I, should be, I should be allowed to be back inside. And the, the sad reality is that most people don't tend to think about these things until they really have to. Or better yet, people like yourselves who are Christians, you might say, well, I think I'm a Christian. I'm not so sure. Maybe I am a citizen. Maybe I'm not. Have I been adopted into the family of God? I don't really know. I, I think so. I have good things. I do good things. I'm a nice kid. Uh, I'm a nice person overall. And sadly, the, the, the reality is that there are people who are really nice, really kind, and yet not citizens of the kingdom. You see, your niceness, your good grades, your athletic prowess, none of that's going to matter to God. Uh, the, the reality is God wants your faith to be real, and, and your citizenship is given to you, granted as a gift, on the merits of Jesus Christ. You're given citizenship on the merits of Jesus Christ. And, and honestly, guys, this is the most important question for you to settle. And we talk about this on a regular basis in Trumor, just because it's so relevant to you. I never take for granted that you are right with God. If you are right, I praise God for you, and I thank God for you when I pray. But if you're not right, this is always a good question for you to answer. Am I a citizen of heaven? Is my name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, or am I going to get to the gate and realize, oh, no, I don't have my passport. I don't have my ticket. I can't get inside where I thought I was going to go. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, did I not go to True North? Did I not serve on the food ministry? Did I not uh, do, do things with the ushers? Did I not go to the, the, the manhood service project? Lord, didn't I do all those things in your name? And the scariest thing that Jesus says is, depart from me. I, I never knew you. How is that possible? I was, all, I was always around you, Jesus. I had friends that knew you. Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, it's your relationship with Jesus. That makes all the difference. Real faith, young person, here, here's what it is in sim sim simplest form. Real faith is a gift from God that changes everything, okay? Nothing in your life is left untouched. Real faith is a gift from God that changes everything. You want to know if your faith is real? Start there. Have I been given the gift of God? Have I accepted that gift? And has it changed everything? Everything. Comprehensive. Well, to answer this question even further, we're going to look at the book of 1 Thessalonians. And in fact, this is the first night that we're going to start this book, and we're going to finish probably in about eight or ten weeks or so. We're going to spend some time in this book because it has so much to tell us. And you'll notice here that the, the, the series is The End is Near. In this book, Paul talks a lot about the end times. His, one of his concerns is that the Thessalonians be ready for the day of the Lord, for the Lord's return. And that's going to be exciting. When we get to that section in Scripture, it'll be fun for us to unpack about what that's going to look like. He wants them to be ready for that and not scared. On top of that, Paul's concern for the Thessalonians is that they don't uh, reject God because of their afflictions. Now, when Paul, when Paul visited them for the first time, trying to plant a church there, and he did successfully, uh, the whole town was thrown in an uproar. In fact, what ended up happening is that some of the people in that town that lived there, the Jews, were jealous of Paul and Silas, who were the missionaries at that point, and they started an uproar and a riot that caused them to get thrown out, Paul and Silas. And so Paul now is concerned. He left Thessalonica, and he's concerned about their faith because the way that he left was abrupt, it was fast, and now he wants to know, are you still in the faith? Are you still enduring? Do you still care about the Lord that has saved you? And so he sends Timothy to Thessalonica to have him scope it out and check him out. How are they doing? Are they well? Are they serving? Are they still following the Lord? And so Timothy goes to Thessalonica, and now he's brought back word to Paul. Paul is now responding to Timothy's report in this letter. Letter was written in the early part of the 50s, maybe so 51, 54, somewhere in that ballpark. So 2,000 years ago, he writes this letter. This is one of the first letters of the New Testament. And his concern for them, again, is twofold. Okay, he wants to be sure that they stay grounded in their faith and that they are prepared for Jesus' return, which is imminent. It can happen at any moment, even now. So those are his driving concerns. In this first 10 verses, chapter 1, this is a glowing, proud papa just doting over the church that he has founded. Now, you're going to see here, he's going to say, I'm so excited about it. I'm so proud of you. I love you guys so much because you're clearly believers. You're clearly Christians. And then he's going to identify reasons why he's so proud of them and reasons why he's so confident that they're Christians. 
you can see immediately how this is going to be helpful for you. Because as you say, how do I know my faith is real? We're going to look at Christians in the first century whose faith was real. Paul commended their faith and says, you guys are an example to all the churches around. So listen closely. If you haven't asked the question recently, how do I know my faith is real? You can ask it tonight. And if you are confident you're a Christian, let this encourage you. And if you're not, let this challenge you. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read the first three verses together, starting chapter 1, verse 1. Paul Silvanus, another nickname he had is Silas. So his nickname is Silas, longer name Silvanus. Paul Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians of to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Thessalonian church, uh, the region that they lived in is still around today. Thessaloniki is its name, and it's located in Greece. So if you've been to Greece before, the ruins of this place still exist. You can go and excavate and or look at the excavated land and see that that, that place is still around. No one lives there anymore. It's been it's been abandoned, but the place is still in existence. Verse two. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Why? We're constantly mentioning you in our prayers because we're remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, again, he's, he's doting over them like a father. I'm so proud to, of, of you guys because I think about you all the time and I thank God for you all the time. I constantly thank God because you're, you're showing these three things. Your, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. I'm so thankful for what God has done in you. I can't help but think about you and just be thankful to God. A couple of our men in this room had some babies recently. And they can't help but dote over their, their newborn son or daughter. Like they're talking about their kid all the time. And they want to show you pictures of their kids. And they, they want you to enjoy the joy that they have for their kids. That's what a dad does. A proud dad who loves his kids is going to just say, look at this awesome person that we made, <laughs> me and my wife. And in the same sense, Paul is saying, look at what God has made, this church that I'm so proud of. I'm so, I'm so excited to see what they're doing. And you'll notice here in verse 3, it says, the work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, love. See that there? Faith, hope, and love. That's the trifecta. That's, the, that's, the, uh, that's what Christian virtue looks like. Faith, hope, and love. You want to know what a Christian looks like. They possess those virtues in their lives. Faith, hope, and love. And this is, again, what Paul commends. He looks at them and says, I'm so grateful for what you guys have done. So grateful for who you are. And essentially, I'm grateful not to, not to me, not to Silas, not to Timothy. I'm not grateful necessarily to you. Who's he grateful for? Who's he grateful toward, rather? Verse 2. We give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. God is the one who's done this work in you, Thessalonians, and it's so evident and so clear because of these things, but it's God who's done the work. This is probably going to be the hardest point that we need to get through because this is the one that is so far removed from you that really there's not whole much for you to do with this point. I put it like this. God's the one who did the work here in the Thessalonian church, and that's why Paul's thinking God and not them and the same thing is true for your salvation. If you are a Christian, this is true for you. If you're not a Christian, this is also true for you. Point number one, you got to know that you must be born again. You must be born again. This is something you can't choose to do necessarily. It's something God does to you. In the same way that you were born physically, God must bear you, bore you supernaturally. I've got four kids now, and it's been a terrible and wonderful experience. <laughs> There were hours, each labor, specifically the labor, the, the labors were hours long, and, it's, and there's pain, and there's misery, and then Kristen was hurting too because she was having the baby. So, like, both of us were just hurting. Probably me worse, the two of us, right? <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But it was hard. It was hard, right? The, the, the process of being in labor is not fun. But, of course, then, you know, they have the baby in your arms. It's like, I oh, forget all, about all the pain. This is awesome. This is worth it. But it got me wondering, what's it like to be the baby? <laughs> I mean, it's weird, right? You're in this amniotic fluid sack of stuff all over you. You're being fed through your belly in an umbilical cord. It's warm in there. Voices are muted. And then suddenly, you're upside down, and there's this pressure to move through a t tunnel. <laughs> you're being shoved down into the tunnel, 
And this poor baby, like, what must be going on in his or her mind as this is happening? And the next thing you know, like the baby just <laughs> shoots out of the mom. And then there's lights and sounds and the cold air, the sterile environment that you could smell. It just smells like, like alcohol in the room. Not alcohol, alcohol. I mean, it smells like, like medical, like rubbing alcohol. I just, it's a whole new experience for the baby. And then they take that bloody mess and they put it on mom and then mom's holding the baby. And so I think there's some comfort there because the baby's like, oh, this is a safe, you know, this is the environment I'm used to. I can hear mom's voice. I can hear mom's heartbeat. That's, there's some comfort there. But what an incredibly weird experience to start your life off with, right? You go from one thing to the next and suddenly everything is different. That's a little bit like what it's like to be born again. You go from the way that your life used to be, and then God transforms you, makes you new, and you're born again into newness of life. The life that you used to know is no longer there because you're now experiencing life as God designed it, to have a heart connected to him. And just like a baby is born, and, and there's expectations about the kind of things the baby will do, there's expectations about the kind of things that a Christian will do. A baby naturally cries. No one has to tell the baby, hey, start crying now when you're hungry. Right? The baby just does it. The baby naturally knows how to get milk from mom. Like no one has to tell the baby, okay, first you put your lips here and then you do that. No, the baby does it. The baby does it. Sorry if I'm being graphic. It's just <laughs> dad life and mom life. No one has to tell the baby. The baby does it by right of it being alive. In a similar way, when Christians are born again, there are certain things that don't have to be taught, but they are caught by right of the new nature. God makes you alive, and suddenly you want to read your Bible. You want to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want to worship him. You want to be around Christians. You want those things. Now, there's a lot of instruction involved, just like a baby. When a baby's learning how to walk, the baby starts by taking very awkward steps. You know, or they, they, even before that, they start crawling, and they start trying to feel around, or they scoot themselves around, and then suddenly they're able to walk with, you know, with a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of uh, kind of balancing act there. And then eventually they're running and they're learning how to do things, but it takes time to develop that natural response to being born again. But I, I, I'm going too quickly here, actually. Okay, let's start with the idea here. To be born again, uh, the baby in mom's belly doesn't choose to be there, right? Did anyone choose to be a baby? No, no, okay. God determined that. God used your parents, <laughs> but God determined that you would be born. And in a similar sense, God determines that you'd be born again. Turn to John chapter 3 with me really quickly here. We're going to look at John chapter 3, the first eight verses. And we're going to see how God talks about the nature of being born again, specifically how Jesus talks about this. Jesus says what it's like to be born again. And the things that I want to point out to you are the uniqueness of how God does this. It's, mis it's mysterious. It's, it's unusual. It's supernatural. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answers him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, confused, I'm sure, says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus clearly not understanding where Jesus is going with this. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That term water and the Spirit refers to the act of regeneration. It's actually an allusion back to the book of Ezekiel, but he's saying unless someone is made new by God, given a new heart, a new mind, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. When you produce a baby out of the physical body, you get a, you get a physical baby, a fleshly a baby. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So you see a parallel there. Mom and dad make a baby. The spirit makes spirit babies. Verse 7, not in the same way. Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And now look at verse 8. This is where he describes now the nature of being born again. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, 
Jesus explains to Nicodemus, when people are born again, it's because the Spirit is choosing to awaken his or her dead mind, dead conscience, and help them to respond in repentance and faith. But before they can respond in repentance and faith, the Spirit must enable and enliven your dead soul to be able to even say, yes, I want that. What I'm essentially saying here is that for someone to be saved, they must first be awakened and enlivened by the Spirit of God. Your question would probably be, well, then it's really not my choice then, Pastor Rod. If, I, if you tell me to get saved and repent and trust Christ, is that really my choice? Well, well, yes, because Scripture never tells you, hey, well, pray if, you're, you know, if you've been born again by the Spirit first. Jesus simply calls us to repent and believe the gospel. So here's the thing. If you're questioning, if you're unsure of your salvation, you need to pray and seek God for that miracle. Like when I call you to repent and trust Christ, I'm not saying pray and see, hey, Spirit, have I been chosen? Can you let me know? Don't do that. Instead, return, return rather, to God and say, God, I desire to be a Christian. Awaken me. Change me. Make me like you want me to be. Give me faith. God must do the work of regeneration. The term regeneration means to be born again. Born again, regeneration, refer to the same thing. Beg God to do the work. If you're unsure, now's the opportunity for even in your mind right now, between you and the Lord, to say, Lord, I don't know if I'm a Christian, but please, I want to be one. Make my heart ready and receptive to what you want me to do, to respond to the gospel. Know that you must be born again by God. You must be born again by God. We're born again by God to something, okay? Born again by God to something. When you're born out of your, your mom, you're born from your mom to life, okay? You're given life to live. You now get to walk and talk and learn how to eat and do all the fun things that humans do. And again, the signs of life will be evident. Baby cries. A baby uh, feeds. A baby does other things in their diaper that are so ungodly, but a baby does that because they're alive, right? That's what they do. A baby has signs of life. And the same thing is true with a Christian. Turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're not there yet, or scroll back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I pointed this out to you as I was reading it in verse 3, but let me show it to you again. The signs of life that Paul saw. If you think about Paul as a doctor in the, in the, in the, in the labor and delivery room, the baby comes out and he sees that, oh, the baby's got a healthy breathing pattern. The baby is crying for mom. This is great. Okay, here are the signs of life that Paul identified in the Thessalonian church. Again, verse 3. He's remembering before God and Father their work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. There you go. Faith, hope, and love. Steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. Know that you must be born again by God to fruitfulness. You must be born again by God to fruitfulness. Galatians chapter 5 says that we are to walk by the Spirit so that we may not gratify the desires of the flesh. James, the brother of Jesus in the flesh, says faith without works is dead. The whole idea here, young person, and we'll, we'll unpack this more and more, but to be born again by God is to have a life that is begun by him that he enables you to walk in a fruitful way, to have a life that shows the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. You're born again by God to fruitfulness. In the same way a baby cries, same way a baby learns to walk. You are called by God to operate in that new way of life. God grants life. You're given, a, given it as a gift. But when he gives you that life, that changes everything. Okay, it changes everything. Life as you used to know it can no longer be the way it, it, it is going forward. Where once you did not love and treasure the Lord, now you do. And even though you do treasure and love the Lord, that does not mean that you're not going to have to work that out. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which is to say, you're given the gift of faith and salvation, but now as a Christian, my job is to fruitfully live that out. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. Those are fruit that the Spirit does in you. Like a baby learns to walk, a Christian learns to become mature. The same thing is true with you. Is that true for you so far? You must be born again by God through fruitfulness. Does that, does that look like your life so far? 
This is the first thing that Paul commends about them, but that's not the only thing. He continues to gush all over them because he sees so many good things happening in their lives. Take a look in verse 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, rather, 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 6. Look at your Bible and read it with me here. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Okay, I got to stop here. Paul's confidence starts with the fact that God loves them. And that God's love has resulted in them being chosen by him to be a special product of his grace. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, we preached to you, but the preaching also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I'm confident that you're a believer. I'm confident God has chosen you, that he loves you, because I could see the way that the gospel came to you, the way that you responded, and then even more than that, the way that you responded to us. You didn't only respond positively to the gospel message, but then you began to imitate our life example, which happens to be the way that the Lord taught us. We suffered, we, we did it with joy, and man, I am just so proud that you guys did this. Again, proud Papa gushing over the people that he has preached to. What this comes down to is their reception of the gospel. They did not respond poorly. They responded rightly. They're the, they're the fourth soil. The, the word is planted and the soil receives it and they bear fruit. They bear fruit. That's what's going on here. Put it like this in point number two. If you want to know that your faith is real, you should know that real faith receives the whole gospel. Okay? They heard the whole gospel and they received it with joy even. Real faith receives the whole gospel. Any of you are string instrument players? You guys might know the name Antonio Stradivarius. Ring a bell, string players? Stradivarius was a, a, an instrument maker. And his instruments, there's about 160 or so that still linger. They, they were made in the 1600s, I think, or 1700s. Anyway, a long time ago. But some of those are still around. Those instruments can sell for millions of dollars. In fact, Yo-Yo Ma, the, the famed celloist, He's got a Stradivarius, and that's, an, I think, a $3 million cello. Like, ridiculously, ridiculously expensive. Well, it, what, what am I, one of the shows I used to like watching a lot was Pawn Stars. There's this guy who, he, said he, he, went to his, he went to his barn, and he found this chest that, when he opened it, had a, a violin in it that inside said Stradivarius. And so he's like, man, I just made it rich. This is a million-dollar piece of, you know, musical instrument instrumentation here. So we took it to uh, the guys at the Pawn Star, the Pawn Star shop. And of course, you know, the show's like, oh, this could be millions and millions of dollars. It could be one of the most expensive things we've ever purchased. And they bring in the, the, the professional to examine it. The guy looks at it and, and they says, well, based on my judgment, this thing is, and they cut to the commercial. <laughs> when he came back from the commercial, he says, it's not real. It's phony. It's a forgery. The guy who was distraught, who just lost millions of dollars in his own mind, says, just because something has a label doesn't mean it's real. Had the label Stradivarius was not the real deal. There's a lot of things in our contemporary culture that have the label Christian and gospel and even justice, but it's not real. I saw a TikTok this week of a guy by the name of Brandon Robertson. He posted a TikTok that said something to the effect of Jesus repents of his racism. Well, you got me. I watched it. I started watching. Okay, tell me how Jesus repented of his racism. And he goes on to say that the Syrophoenician woman who came up to him and asked him for healing, Jesus says, no, it's not good that I should give, you know, the dogs the food from the table. And she says, yes, but master, uh, even the dogs receive the crumbs. And so he blesses her, shows her, you know, great is your faith, woman. Your daughter is healed. This guy, um, calls himself a reverend, Reverend Brandon Robertson, said that in this account, Jesus repented of being racist. Jesus repented of being racist. And it was because this girl spoke truth to action that he was able to see his racism and respond appropriately. He calls himself a Christian. 
calls himself a gospel preaching man. It's the kind of thing here that makes me so upset and so angry that I honestly just sometimes lose my words in here. But, but realize that there are people that masquerade with a gospel message that is not the real thing. It's not the whole thing. In fact, it's a, it's a uh, terrible uh, counterfeit. It's, it's something that appears to be the message, but it truly is not. So what I want to do is label a couple things that the whole gospel message includes that are essential to understanding it rightly. So as you're thinking, young person, about your faith being real, ask yourself, have I heard these elements of the gospel that call me to this kind of life? First of all, the whole gospel includes something obvious, repentance and faith, okay? The first thing, repentance and faith. Whole gospel, repentance and faith. Pastor Robbie, you've heard this before. That's okay. Hear it again. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel confronts us, and it tells us we need to repent because something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with us. We are broken. We are sinful. We are rebellious against God. And here's the thing. You and I, if we got what we justly deserved, would be condemned before God for all eternity. Christians have called this uh, hell, and it is defined as eternal conscious torment. Yes, we believe in a God who is loving, but don't make the mistake of thinking that he is all love and no justice. In fact, love necessitates hating. True love means if I love justice, I hate injustice. If I love holiness, I hate wickedness. God, who is love, 1 John chapter 4, loves righteousness, holiness, justice, and goodness. Guess what you and I are not? Righteous, holy, just, or good. See, the Bible condemns our behavior, and it says no matter who you are, whether you're black, white, brown, male, female, gay, straight, or something else in between, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why the gospel calls us to repent. Repentance means you are confessing to God that you are irreparably broken, and you need him to save you. The power of the gospel is in that the message of repentance is paired with the message of faith. Faith in what? Namely, that Jesus came to redeem sinners by his own death on the cross. He goes to the cross as a substitute, willing to die for, get this, the villains. The villains. In this story, the hero, Jesus, dies for the bad guy you and me. Repentance and faith. The thing is, for, for the word and power and full conviction of the Holy Spirit to come, there must be a full presentation of the gospel. Have you responded to that, young person? Have you responded to the message of God loves you, but he hates your sin, therefore repent and turn from that and thrust yourself in the mercy of Jesus. Put your full and total trust in him. Is that the message that you heard? And if it is, have you responded to that? with repentance, turning from your sin, and faith in Christ. The whole gospel includes repentance and faith. The whole gospel also includes the obedience of faith. Number one, repentance and faith. Number two, the obedience of faith. In verse six, Paul commends the Thessalonians. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You became imitators. You guys saw the way that we lived, and you... You followed suit. You see, when the gospel brings Christians into the realm of, of, uh, of salvation, it's not, hey, come and be part of this, this new kingdom, but also just stay there and don't worry about anything else. Just be a bump on the log, enjoy your Christianity, and when you get to heaven, here's your ticket, you're fine, you're good to go. Give the man your passport book, and he'll just stamp it, and you'll be on your way. That's not the way it works. When God invites us to repent, it's turn away from your dead works. Stop doing life the way that you used to do it, and now follow after King Jesus. Do what he does, and in fact, here's the boldest thing that Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, which as a pastor, my job is to tell you, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. That sounds pretty audacious, right? Sounds braggadocious, like, oh, what a braggart. He thinks he's so much better than us. No, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's willing to say, do, do what I do. You became imitators of us? That's great. I love that because that's what you're supposed to do. See, Christians who are brought into the realm of salvation are never, ever content with their level of holiness. They're never happy with where they are because they're constantly being provoked by the Holy Spirit to render obedience to God by faith. To render obedience to God by faith, which means this. When you're obedient to God, this is not you trying to get God off your back so that he doesn't discipline you. 
We should always fear the discipline of God. But this is more obedience from faith. Namely, I trust God. I love God. And so though my obedience will never be perfect, I will still give it. When I woke up this morning, I'll tell you, between you and me, just, just us here, I was not feeling particularly excited about reading my Bible. And there's a lot of days like that. I'll wake up, and for whatever reason, I'm just not in the zone. I don't feel good. I'm emotionally drained for different reasons. And so I open up my Bible, and I'm like, I don't want to read right now. I'm just not in the, I'm not in the mode. But you know what I did? I offered up a prayer, and I said, God, I'm going to do this anyway. Please help me to get, what I, get out of it what I need and to soften my heart to read and to respond to it. Please don't let me do things that are just checking the box, but to render obedience by faith, that he will accept my obedience, not because of my present state, because it wasn't good, but because of what Jesus did on my behalf. We repent and put our faith in Christ, and that's part of the whole gospel being presented. whole gospel includes the obedience of faith, which is a denial of who you are to accept who Jesus is. In fact, one of the things that you're going to look at in your small group questions is when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That means when you become a Christian, you've essentially given up the driver's seat of your, the, the car of your life. This is not, this is not you in the, in the driver's seat and Jesus and your, your, your co-pilot telling you, turn left, turn right. No, Jesus is in the driver's seat. And whatever his word says to do, that's your responsibility to say, okay, okay, you, you're the boss. I will obey in faith, trusting Christ, no matter what. Obedience of faith. There's a lot more in that, but let's continue on. The second part of verse six says this. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. He says, for you receive the word in much affliction, much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul commends the Thessalonians. He knows that they're Christians, not only because they had the whole gospel. They repented and trusted. They were obedient in faith. They also, number three, they had the endurance of faith. They were enduring. Okay, so one, repentance of faith. Two, obedience of faith. Three, the endurance of faith. They received the word in much affliction. When Paul preached the gospel to them, it was not, hey, you're going to become a Christian and everyone's going to be fine with it. No, you're going to become a Christian and people are going to hurt you for that reason. And in fact, that's why Paul was concerned about the Thessalonians because they were under, uh, they were under affliction. They were under tribulation. People were, were harassing them for their Christianity. And young person, this is exactly where you are right now. I love the time that we're in because every season has its own challenges. But here's the thing. You now are in a season of life where, praise God, it's going to cost you a little something to be a Christian, to stand with him and to say, Jesus is my Lord. I'm his servant. Whatever he says, I will uh, believe and I'll do. This is good. This is really good because this will purify our church and this will help you to realize that becoming a Christian is not a nonchalant, easy believism kind of thing. It will cost you something. Paul says, I'm grateful for the Thessalonians because they received the word in much affliction, but with joy of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever, have you ever like in cross-country cross people in here, you're, you're running or you're biking or you're doing some kind of exercise and you're at the point where your muscles are burning and then you're like, okay, I'm going to keep pushing past this, right? And then your, your, your lungs start burning. And it's like, oh, this all hurts. This is terrible. This is, this is painful. But you keep running anyway, right? And you finish the course. You finish the race. You finish the workout, whatever. You keep pushing past. If you're one of the weirdos who, do, who does things like that, and on top of that feeling of pain in your lungs and on your body, and you can smile like this is awesome, that's the person Paul's talking about here. They're hurting, they're distraught, they're being harassed by everyone around. And yet, like the runner whose lungs are burning, whose legs are burning, and is smiling across the finish line, that's what he's saying. That's, that's what I love about you, Thessalonians. You're imitating us and receiving affliction and still running the race with joy in Christ through the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening. He's grateful for that. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. Following Christ is personally costly. But, but... Faith endures. Faith pushes us. True faith, real faith, is something that does not let us give up. It will cost us, but we will endure. Real faith is a gift from God that changes everything. 
your mindset, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your ambitions, your spouse. Real faith is a gift from God that changes everything about you. Have you experienced this conversion, young person? Have you experienced this kind of transformation in your life? Faith doesn't stop there. Last three verses. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. Verse 7, he says, so your, your, your example, uh, your, your, your faith was so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For, <clears throat> for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves, the people who hear about the, <coughs> excuse me, the Thessalonians, report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn, from God, uh, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul says, your reputation precedes you. People all around the, the, the territory here, all around these Roman provinces, have heard about your faith. And, and, and they're hearing these things because you're sharing the gospel everywhere. He, he, he says these things in, in, verse, uh, in verse 7. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. He says, we don't need to say anything to anybody because the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. These guys are just fire. Like they love the Lord and they don't care if anyone knows it. They tell everybody. They're open. They're blatant. They're honest about their love for the Lord and there's nothing that's going to stop them. They're public. Now, one of the things that you're going to have to do when you get married, knowing person, is, is wear these things right here. See this? It's a wedding ring. I've lost about four of these. I felt bad the first time. Second time, I was mad because I'm like, I spent more money on this. The third time, I was like, oh, here it goes again. The fourth time, I spent like 75 bucks on one of those cool titanium rings. That was the most recent one. I got fitted and size. I went to the jeweler and he gave me a new ring. And I'm like, all right, this one I'm not going to lose. I don't know how I lost it, but I lost it. I was thinking maybe I should put a tile on it or something so I can't lose it. So eventually I wised up and I, and I got these little rubber ones, right? I can lose them. Not a big deal. Replace it for another 50 cent rubber ring. But, but here's the thing that's, that's not optional. Um, even though I can replace my, my, my wedding, my, oh, let's try that again. I can replace my wedding ring with more rings, but here's something that is not an option for me. I don't have the option of just not wearing it, okay? I can have the option of getting different kind of rings, you know, color coordinating and fashion, fashionistaing different rings. But if I came to my wife one day and said, you know what, babe, I don't, just don't feel like wearing this thing anymore. It's just so oppressive. Like, and you're white and I'm brown, so you're the oppressor and I just take it off and I should just live my life. Sorry, that was uncalled for. But because I love my wife, my relationship with her goes public. I don't care that people know that I'm married. When I go to the gym or when I go to the market, you know, I just have my, and she has her wedding ring on too. No one ever has to guess if we're married because we're, we got knotted up. We got the ring. Now, if I started not wearing my ring, she would have a really good suspicion or a really good reason to suspect whether or not I truly was committed to the relationship. Because this is public. This, not so much, right? My ring is in my pocket, and you know, I'm getting yoked at the gym, and I'm like, oh. Actually, you could still see the tan line. So in this case, it wouldn't work, but you get my point. Serious relationships go public. Point number three, know that real faith goes public. Real faith is a gift from God that changes everything. Even your willingness to be a fool for Christ People know that you're a Christian and you're open about that. You wear the Christian t-shirts. You say the Christian things. You do the Christian Bible study thing. People know that about you. And you're like, I'm okay with that because I love my Lord. If people were suddenly uh, to, 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 be, to make fun of me because I was a, a married man, I'm like, I don't care about what you have to say. I love my wife. Same thing is true for a Christian who knows his Lord. If you've been saved by God and you realize that Jesus willingly bled and died on your behalf, it's not going to bother you if people make fun of you. You might hurt a little bit. But your concern is more with, the, with pleasing the one who died for you. Real relationships go public. Thessalonian church was willing to go public about the gospel. You'll notice here in verse 7, excuse me, verse 8, 
It says here that the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. That, that word sounded forth. I like the way the NIV translates that. It says the word of the Lord rang out. The gospel rang out from the Thessalonian church. They were so in love with the Lord who saved them that they could not help but tell people about the gospel that changed their lives. They could not be stopped if they tried. They told everyone about it. How are you doing in that category? Are you, are, are you a Christian who is silent about the gospel? Are you ashamed? Are you scared? Are you worried that people will think less about you? Or maybe tonight you can glory with your small group about the gospel that has saved you. That's what the, that's what the Thessalonian church is doing. They don't care what people think. The word of the Lord rang out from them. They're telling people about the gospel. Not only telling people about the gospel, they're telling people about the Savior. It says, your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Their faith in God. There's a tangible love for Jesus that they can't help but be honest about that with the people that they meet. Love for Jesus is what's going to characterize the words that you use, the kind of uh, the academics that you pursue. All of that's going to be informed by your love for Jesus. People that truly have been saved are not ashamed of Christ. Will you struggle with it? Sure. But the struggle is always going to provoke you to say, no, I want to be honest about who I am, who Jesus has saved. If you're ashamed of Christ, listen to these scary words. Mark 8, 38. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Kind of a scathing rebuke the way Jesus puts this. He says, why are you essentially trying to be popular with people who are essentially creating a system that's sending everyone to hell? Why are you trying to please those people? Why are you trying to be cool in that? He says, this wicked and adulterous generation, this wicked and sinful generation, if you're trying to be popular with them, you can have that. But when I come back and I'm the king here, it's not going to go well with you. So Jesus says, count the cost. Think about this. Yeah, you might be less popular here. People might think poorly about you here. But in the next life, when things really matter, when you're living for billions upon billions of years, when it really counts, you will be right with the sun. And that's what really matters. Love for Jesus is born into the DNA of those who have been born again. Love for Jesus is born into the DNA of those who have been born again. But it's also got to be exercised. It's got to be exercised. It's got to be something that you personally work on and exercise like a muscle. Real faith goes public about the gospel, about the Savior, and lastly, about the story, the story of your conversion. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, we don't have any need for, for you have no need of us to, to report about you because your story has gone forth everywhere. How you turn from God, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Paul says, your story is just spreading all over the place. And how do you think that's happening? Again, the Thessalonians are honest about who they are in Christ. They're telling their testimony to different people. They're being honest about their love for the Lord and how God has changed them. When's the last time you've shared your story? When's the last time you felt compulsion to tell someone, look, here's where I used to be. Here's what I used to be before Christ. And now here's who I am in Christ. In STM Utah, we had a training one year. There's two missionaries that were in Utah, uh, Christian missionaries, not the Mormon ones. Uh, they came to do some training with us, and they're like, here's a simple method for how to, to, to share the gospel with anybody. And they gave us this really easy way of saying, look, just tell your story to people. 30-second gospel presentation. You start off by saying, there was a time in my life when I was, and you fill in the blank. And, and so you might put like, a, there was a time in my life when I was self-righteous and lost. And then they tell you, okay, so after that, you say, you pick two, two words. There was a time in my life when I was blankety blank. But then... I received the forgiveness of Jesus and I started to follow him as Lord. Fill in two more blanks. But then I found hope in Christ and I trusted him for salvation. But then I was born again by God and I had a new heart and a new mind. Okay, three steps so far. The fourth step. And now I've been, two more blanks, rescued and adopted. I've been saved and sanctified. You're sharing your story in miniature and then you return to them and say, do you have a story like that? Do you have a story like that where God has saved you? It's a simple, silly illustration. But the point is, we often don't really give thought to our stories. The way that God has changed you, if you are a Christian, has got to be something you have ready to go. Talk to people about what God has done for you. The, the Thessalonians were stoked about that. And it wasn't because of them. They were excited about what God did for them. That provoked them to share the gospel with as many people as they could. And consequently, gave Paul the 
the confidence that they were truly believers. Know that real faith goes public. Real faith is a gift from God that changes everything. I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I, I actually took several classes, two classes, so two, not several, two classes on how to play classical guitar. And one of the guys I learned about who's a classical guitarist is a guy by the name of Christopher Parkening. Christopher Parkening. Christopher Parkening is probably one of the greatest classical guitarists ever. And I know for most of you, like, who's that? He's not Billie Eilish. I get that. He's, but he's a classical guitarist who's really good. Take my word for it. Accomplished. And on top of that, he's also like this, this champion bass fish fisherman. Like just <laughs> weird stuff. But this was his goal. He wanted to be a world-famous classical guitarist and a pro fisherman, which he accomplished both. So he had it all. Had it all that he wanted. And at one point in his life, he started to get flustered and a little bit restless with the life that God had given him. And in fact, he didn't know God. So he bought this cabin in the woods and thought, you know, I'm just going to fish for the rest of my life. I've got plenty of money. I'll go and fish and enjoy the fruit of my labors. But he grew more restless. Until one day, he decided to join a church service with some of his friends. Not a church person himself. He thought, what do I have to lose? He goes. God saves him. Surprise. After his salvation... As he becomes a student of the word, he reads 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And suddenly, something in him clicks. I know how to play guitar. I know how to fish. And I can do those things for God's glory. And I can find great satisfaction and joy in submitting to his plan and purpose for my life. And so he says, my life has purpose. I've learned firsthand the true secret of genuine happiness. What is it? Living for the glory of God. For him, that was everything, and that should be everything for you. You see, young person, I don't want to leave you feeling like Christianity is just some dour, sour religion that says do this and don't do that, and you should be this way and not be that way. To the contrary, you were made for God. You were made to love God, to serve God, to honor God, and when you live in that truth, the truth, that is when you are most happy. You were designed for God. Surrender if you haven't. If you are, press on for greater, deeper, and better Christianity. Never be satisfied with where you are. If God has given you the gift of faith, realize that real faith changes everything for the better. If you will but respond. Let's pray. 